What you are about to hear is a labor of love. Our love is for the music, and music is for the people. We at Rockstrikes10 and cnjradio.com have always recommended that any music we promote on our shows be legally purchased, downloaded, and or streamed. We feel this way not only for our network of shows, but for all music-based shows. By supporting the artist in this way, more music can be created and the industry as a whole can prosper. The music is owned by their respective labels or hopefully the artists themselves. This broadcast is owned by cnjradio.com. Our only mission is to promote the music we love and promote the legal purchase of it. Enjoy the show and turn it up. Welcome to Rock Welcome to Rock Strikes 10, the show guaranteed to always give you 10 songs, no more, no less. My name is Joey. I want to thank everybody for tuning into the show here today, especially if you're doing it at the central station of cnjradio.com. And extra, extra, extra special thanks for those of you who have been making a point to tune in to this particular countdown and also talking about it, sharing it, tweeting it out, all that good stuff online. Thank you. I've been seeing a little bit of extra influx there. And you probably see me liking all the stuff and sharing it and all that. So it means the world to me that you do that. It's one thing to be doing the show, but it's another thing to know that people are listening. So, yes, okay. Let's dive right back in to the 81 from 81, the top 81 albums from the year 1981, we are now into the top 20, and we are definitely not screwing around anymore. These are all massively, massively great records. The tops, the cream, all that good stuff. Let's kick off here at number 20 with uh, a favorite of Eddie Trunks, but don't let that dissuade you. This album came out at the very beginning of the year of 1981 on January 6th to be exact. Self-produced the ninth album by UFO called The Wild, The Willing, and The Innocent. It's a great record, and it rocks, so hey, let's just get into it right here. So kicking off the show in fine fashion, this is UFO with It's Killing Me.
Kicking off the show here today, coming in at number 20 of the best albums from 1981, that was UFO. The album is The Wild, The Willing, and The Innocent. That was a killer song called It's Killing Me. And it is. Uh, By the way, yeah, massively outdoing their ex-lead guitar player Michael Schenker on the countdown here. Michael obviously had an entry here earlier on the show, but that album kills his album, I gotta say. No total disrespect, but come on. If you hear them both, you'll know what I mean. Now, number 19 is also a British band, also on their ninth studio album, and their imaging always massively uses a UFO. Yes, Electric Light Orchestra put out their ninth record on July 2nd of 1981. The album is called Time. This album wasn't very big when it came out, but it has aged very well, and it definitely deserves to be here in the upper echelon of this countdown of course produced by the genius himself jeff lynn and you know if you've never heard this album before i'm going to give you a little taste here because we're going to lead in with the intro track here with the prologue intro piece right here and then we go right into this killer song right here so enjoy this this is electric light orchestra and twilight
ELO right there with Twilight and the prologue preceding it from the album Time. Great stuff right there. Hope you enjoyed that. We move all the way over to my neck of the woods here in Texas. Of course, I think you know where we're going with this. Who else is putting out a quality album from the state of Texas in 1981? I don't think we've had any on this list, but of course, leave it to the little old band from Texas, ZZ Top. And their seventh album, El Loco, came out on July 20th of 1981, produced by Bill Ham. Did he really produce it? Probably not. More so Billy, if I had to guess. And, you know, the engineers and stuff like that. This is a super fun ZZ Top record, kind of often ignored, although everybody does seem to know two of the successful singles off of it, being Pearl Necklace and Tube Snake Boogie. If you've never dived deeper on this album, you really should. Ten Foot Pole, super fun song. Groovy Little Hippie Pad and Party on the Patio are super party songs. Heaven, Heller, Houston, my favorite oddballs ZZ Top song ever. You gotta hear it to believe it. I'm not gonna play it on this show, but you gotta listen to the record. I'm going to go with this one actually right here because just looking here uh, on the wiki of the album, which is where I get the release date from, although, you know, I guess those aren't always accurate, but come to find out, according to this, the first single that was released from this album really hasn't stood the test of time. You never hear this song on classic rock radio or really anywhere else, not even on the deep channels. Uh, I love this song. I think it's super cool. It's a very off-the-beaten-path ballad from ZZ Top. They don't do a whole lot of ballads. When they do, they're like super, super into the blues, like something really cool like I Need You Tonight, you know, or Full For Your Stockings. Those are great songs, but they just do a straight-up ballad right here in kind of a rock-slash-soft-rock style. And I guess that's why it didn't take off, but I think this is a super cool song. Just a killer melody. So enjoy the first bomb single released from El Loco, but it's great. So here you go. This is Easy Top with Leela.
Alright, some nice mellow song stylings from an unexpected place via ZZ Top, the song Leela from El Loco. I recommend you listen to that whole record. Of course, every album on this entire 81 albums list right here, you should listen to them all top to bottom and or purchase them. Now, coming in at number 17, an album that was released on May 5th, 1981. And if MCA Records would have had their way, this album would have been priced initially at the retail price of $9.99, a new higher price point for Superstar releases. But if the artist had had their way, he would have just named the album $8.99. Yes, one of our favorites, the late great Tom Petty, with his fourth album with the Heartbreakers, Hard Promises. And I even love the little, you know, trolling of the labels where... uh, Tom's in like a discount bin at a record store. You know, I, I know it's definitely a shot at the label also. A true maverick in the music business till the very end. There's very few albums that aren't worth getting by Tom Petty. And even though this one is slightly ignored in the overall grand scheme of things, once again, much like El Loco, this one is worth tracking down. Co-produced by Tom Petty and Jimmy Iovine, who of course is now the you know head poobah of Interscope Records. But once upon a time, when he was just a mere record producer, uh, he was also married to Stevie Nicks at this time. And he, of course, was responsible for bringing Stevie into the fold. They recorded Insider as a duet together, and they recorded Stop Dragging My Heart Around, which, of course, wound up on each other's albums. Stevie, of course, had the bigger hit on her record was Stop Dragging My Heart Around. Insider is a great track, which is also on Hard Promises. But I'm going to play you this one right here. Yeah, I'm really surprised that this one wasn't a single, but I guess maybe, you know, the label possibly gave up on the record after what they thought was the initial hits off of there. Because, you know, even though they were all fighting, you know, money is money. Money talks and bullshit walks, right? Uh, But here you go. Should have been a single. I love this song. It's one of the standout ones. Like this one and Night Watchmen are my two favorites on the record on a very stellar album. But here you go. This is Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers from the Hard Promises record with King's Road.
right. Once again, a great Maverick and uh, someone who is sorely missed in music, Tom Petty with the Heartbreakers from the Hard Promises record. That was King's Road. Hope you enjoy that. How could you not? If you don't enjoy that, you don't have a pulse. We're moving on here to number 16. And speaking of true Mavericks and someone who was sorely missed, I did not plan this in advance, but I'm just kind of noticing it. As I look at this list, uh, we're going to recognize the late, great Wendy O. Williams. Man, what else can be said about her? Go watch like documentaries and anything you can about her. She was freaking amazing. A true superwoman, a true rebel, not a bit. That was how she lived her life for real. She do what she want to do. <laughs> uh, but yes, in May of 1981, the Plasmatics put out their sophomore album called Beyond the Valley of 1984, even though it was in 1981. But it's a great title. We can all agree on that at least. Co-produced by Rod Swinson and the Plasmatics. This album just has a super huge monster sound to it. Uh, I don't know it's, if it's the way it's just mixed or whatever, but it's got a super full sound. It is as strong as their presence is. And here's an added bonus. Gotta be one of my favorite rhythm sections in the history of recorded music. It was a one-time thing because the drummer they brought in to record the album didn't do the tour. So this only happened in the studio. But what an amazing rhythm section here. You got Jean Bouvois on bass and the great Neil Smith from the original Alice Cooper group on drums for this record. Just adding to the overall amazingness and awesomeness of this super cool freaking record. So check it out. Beyond the Valley of 1984. This is The Plasmatics. And I'm not even going to introduce the song because Wendy is going to do it way better than I ever could. Take it away, Queen of Punk. This is for all you headbangers out there. You know who you are.
Some frenzied energy of the plasmatics. The song was Headbanger. Also, you got to go look up the appearance that they did to promote this album on Tomorrow's Show with Tom Snyder. One of the great television appearances of all time. I've got that DVD that's like Tomorrow's Show, Punk and New Wave, and it's the full show. And the interesting thing about it is they share guest slots with some like live in Christian organization or something like that. It's pretty wild. But the whole episode's worth watching. And of course, seeing the musical performances, one of which is Headbanger. It's classic television that will never happen again, I can't imagine. Uh, so yeah, all that really adds into the overall enjoyment of the sound for me, I think, of those things. But man, if you're not convinced by how much of a beast the album is just by that track, then you don't have a pulse. Once again, we're checking pulses here on the Top 20 of 1981 we're going to uh, kind of smooth things down a little bit here. This is one of the true exhibit A's where it's like Joey can appreciate many things in his music. Something as manic as the plasmatics into something like this. This album came out on September 22nd of 1981. This was the band's eighth studio album, but their first one in seven years. This is like a comeback album for sure. And a comeback in a sense where the band really changed quite a bit. They came in with only two of their members from the previous album, and the two new members they added really changed the sound. Not in a bad way, just in a different way. The only members remaining from the last King Crimson release was Robert Fripp and Bill Bruford. So Tony Levin, amazing, innovative bass player. Uh, you've heard Tony Levin on many albums that you own, even though you don't know his name. And another guy the same way, Adrian Ballou. Wow, if you own Bowie records or Talking Heads records or Frank Zappa records, then you know Adrian Ballou also, even if you don't know him. It's just that kind of thing. Uh, King Crimson has become surgeons now by this point in 1981 with this album, Discipline. One of the first times I remember hearing a track from this, actually, because I was late to the game on King Crimson, probably about 20 years ago is when I first got into him. But uh, I remember hearing Les Claypool's Flying Frog Brigade record, the volume one, and they did Tela Hangijit, or whatever you pronounce it. <laughs> they covered that on there, and I was like, oh, that's a neat track. So come to find out that's where that song comes from, is this album here, Discipline. It's just an overall enjoyable album for me. It's manic in the prog sense, but it's very artsy and can be very beautiful at times. It's, it is just uh, all the moods on one record, but it also contains this song. This is one of the most beautiful songs I have ever heard in my entire life. And also happens to be the actual official first single from the album, which definitely gave people a false sense of what this album is overall about. But I digress. Here you go. This is Mate Kudasai.
Coming in at number 15, the Discipline album by King Crimson and the great track Mate Kudasai, which, of course, let's go to the wiki and get that translated. According to this, it means wait, please. And that's Japanese right there. So that is a killer segue. And I did not plan this in advance. I'm going to actually send you over to my best friend in the entire world, the C of CNJ Radio and former live-in student to the land of Japan. Yes, Chris is going to do a very unique top 10 for 1981. And as I preface this list here, I highly recommend, even though he'll mention it, I highly recommend you check out The Last Theater on cnjradio.com. That all being said, Chris, please take it away for our halftime show movie break right here. Enjoy this, and I'll see you soon. Thank you, Joey, and welcome, everyone, to this Horror Strikes 10 list, presented by me, Chris, from The Last Theater. 1981 was a great year for horror movies. The slasher cycle, kicked off by John Carpenter's Halloween, a few years prior was in full swing. Movies were getting bloodier and gorier thanks to the special effects wizards of gore, like Tom Savini, and the proliferation of VHS was beginning to flood homes with low-budget affairs that shocked and disturbed people from around the world. 
Even though I was just a little baby at the time, and I wouldn't discover the greatness of 1981 until many years later, some of my favorite horror movies came out of that year. So if you'll indulge me for just a few minutes, I'd like to share with you my top 10 horror movies from 1981. Number 10 is The Burning, a movie I'd heard about for years before finally getting the chance to see it for the first time in a special theatrical screening. It's a bloody, low-budget slasher that feels entirely like a Friday the 13th ripoff, even though pre-production reportedly started on it before Friday the 13th was a thing. Regardless of the timing and who got their ideas from whom, The Burning is a fun film about summer campers being slaughtered in the woods by a scarred maniac out for revenge. It's notable for being the debut film of Holly Hunter, Jason Alexander, and Fisher Stevens, and to tie it into the show that I'm on right now, Rick Wakeman composed the movie's score. Plus, this is the movie that Tom Savini chose to do in 1981 instead of the next movie on my list, so obviously the kills in The Burning are memorably over the top. Coming in at number 9 is Friday the 13th Part 2. If you're a longtime listener to The Last Theater, then you know I think the second Friday entry is pretty okay. It's a mostly fun rehash of the original Friday the 13th, but with slightly less engaging characters and slightly less sense. I've talked at length about the movie before with Joey, so go check out the podcast on cnjradio.com for more, but I do think it's interesting that Tom Savini passed on this movie to do The Burning instead. The rumor is that he thought Jason being the killer in Friday the 13th Part 2 didn't make much sense, which he is correct about, and he preferred The Burning script. I don't think either movie is Shakespeare, but Friday the 13th just barely edges out the burning in my memory, and that's why it's number 9 on my list. The next movie coming in at number 8 is the first of a handful of Italian films on this list. Originally released in Europe in 1981 and released in the United States a few years later, Burial Ground, aka Knights of Terror, aka Zombie 3, aka a bunch of other different titles, is a bizarre and gruesome film about a horde of zombies attacking a group of people in an old house. The plot is about as basic as it comes, but the fun in the movie comes from the low-budget zombie gore and a very creepy performance of a 20-something-year-old Pietro Barocchini as a young boy with a disturbing Oedipus complex. The movie doesn't make a ton of sense, but like many Italian exploitation movies of the era, the visuals are what makes the movie memorable and most enjoyable. Next on my list is another Italian movie, and one from a category of horror that can often be hard to watch. Number 7 is Cannibal Ferox, a cannibal movie that often gets lumped in with other Italian flesh-eating movies, such as the more well-known Cannibal Holocaust, which came out the previous year. The comparisons between Ferox and Holocaust are completely valid, and Holocaust probably is the superior film, but both are great examples of a subgenre that is more often easier to appreciate than it is to enjoy. Cannibal Ferox is about a group of people who travel to South America to prove that cannibalism doesn't exist, but they, of course, get hunted by cannibals. The violence is intentionally vile and transgressive, and the story is really little more than an excuse to string together a bunch of gory scenes. The scenes are gloriously gory though, and that's why the movie is on my list. And we travel back to North America for number 6. Specifically, we're headed to Canada to celebrate Valentine's Day with My Bloody Valentine. It's one of the better low-budget slashers with a fun mystery, inventive kills, and a sufficiently memorable killer that terrorizes a small town on Valentine's Day. 
The movie was only available in its heavily edited form for years, so be sure to get one of the more recent releases if you're going to check it out for the first time, or for the first time in a long time. My Bloody Valentine has become a February tradition for me over the past few years, and I highly recommend it for any fan of slasher movies. Halfway through the list, and number 5 is Halloween 2. I've said for years that Halloween 2 is one of the better horror sequels out there, and I still believe that. This is another movie that I've talked about on the last theater before, but to summarize, Halloween 2 is a more straightforward slasher in the vein of Friday the 13th than it is a tension-building masterpiece like John Carpenter's original Halloween, but it's still a ton of fun with great kills and fun characters. Moving away from the holiday themes, number 4 is An American Werewolf in London. The strengths of John Landis and Rick Baker, combined with a fabulous lead performance from David Naughton, makes this one of the best horror comedies of all time. It's a perfect blend of horror and comedy without diluting either side too much, which is usually one of my biggest nitpicks with horror movies that try to be funny. It's a classic werewolf tale told in a contemporary way about an American backpacker who is attacked by a werewolf, thereby becoming a werewolf himself. If you've never seen it before, be sure to check it out. And since we're already in London, let's hop back one more time over to Italy for number three on my list, The Beyond. The Beyond is the second part of Lucio Fulci's Gates of Hell trilogy, and the movie itself is a largely inexplicable and surreal tale of black magic and ancient evil. It's been long enough since I've seen it that I can't really explain the plot to you, but many of the more wonderful visuals are etched in my brain for all time. The Beyond is not my favorite Fulci movie, but any Fulci movie is going to do well on any top 10 list that I do. My next movie gives me one last chance to talk about Tom Savini. Savini was doing a ton of great work in the early 80s, and his effects were once again a significant part of why I enjoy this next movie on my list. My second favorite horror movie from 1981 is Maniac, a psychological slasher movie starring the immensely underrated Joe Spinell. Though the movie debuted in the Cannes Film Festival in 1980, which seems really bizarre to say, it was released theatrically in 1981. The movie stars Joe Spinell, a character actor who you've probably seen in a lot of great movies, including Rocky, Taxi Driver, The Godfather, and many, many more. He was also in one of mine and Joey's favorite movies, Night Shift, and in Maniac he plays Frank Zito, a deranged serial killer haunted by his abusive past. Unlike many slashers where the focus is largely on the victims and the killings, Frank Zito is the main character of Maniac, and we get to hear his disturbing thoughts as he struggles and repeatedly fails to rein in his darkest impulses. It's a unique take on the slasher formula that stands out as, in my opinion, one of the best, and it's also quite violent. As a bonus, Tom Savini not only does the special effects, but he makes a cameo in the film, and he acts as Joe Spinell's body double in one of the more memorable killing scenes, and in effect, Tom Savini kills himself in Maniac. And now for the final movie on my list. This film would definitely be on my top 10 list for 1981, even if it wasn't just about horror movies specifically. In fact, this film has never really left my top 10 movies of all time, regardless of year or genre. Easily my favorite horror movie of 1981, and number one on this list, is The Evil Dead. The Evil Dead did have its premiere in Detroit, Michigan on October 15th, 1981, so even though it didn't get a wider release until later, and even though I didn't see it until quite a few years later on one of its mini VHS releases, it still qualifies as a 1981 movie. 
The Evil Dead, for those who may not be aware, is one of the movies responsible for the Cabin in the Woods motif. It's about a group of college students, including the legendary Bruce Campbell, who decide to take a trip to a rundown, isolated cabin in the woods. They unleash a demonic force that begins to kill and or possess them, and as their human numbers dwindle, the gore and violence continues to grow and grow. It's a fantastic movie, and for me, it's easily the best in the series that would go on to be fun in a very different and way more comedic way. So that's my list, my top 10 movies from 1981. There are plenty that I had to leave out, and there are plenty that I'm sure I forgot or that I've just never seen before, but hopefully this list gives you a nice starting place if you're interested in some 1980s horror, or maybe it will give you something to discuss if you think I'm crazy and this list is just completely wrong. Either way, thanks for listening, and thank you to Joey for giving me the time to share my thoughts. And after you finish listening to this episode of Rock Strikes 10, head over to cnjradio.com to check out more from The Last Theater, including a brand new review that I've done for the movie currently in theaters, the ninth installment of the Saw series, Spiral, starring Chris Rock. So go check those out, and I'll talk to you later.
Coming in at number 14 on the 81 from 81, the best albums from 1981. The album is called Moving Pictures. That was, of course, Rush with that unmistakable voice of Geddy Lee. And I actually didn't plan on not introducing the track. It just made total sense to me that I was going to play a song called The Camera Eye after a list about movies. Plus, the added bonus that I know Chris is a big Rush fan. This would definitely be on his top choices for 1981, if I may speak for him. I don't think I'm talking out of school there. Uh, so yeah, great list. I got a few I got to go watch. I haven't seen some of those. I've seen most of them. Don't get me wrong, but there's a few in there that I hadn't seen. And Chris is amazing at talking up film. What he says is law to me. He's never steered me wrong about a movie recommendation. So go do what he says and check out The Last Theater. So yeah, here's a few stats about moving pictures. It came out on February 12th of 1981, co-produced by Rush and Terry Brown, who was definitely on quite a roll with Rush. He came into the band on their second album, Fly By Night, and he would continue to be their producer all the way up until the year after this with the album Signals. And now we move on to one of the more successful albums of the entire year of 1981, coming in here at lucky number 13. This album came out on September 1st, 1981, and it boasts... Two number one hits in the Hot 100 charts. The songs were the title track of the album and a song called I Can't Go For That, No Can Do. The other track, of course, was Private Eyes. The album is Private Eyes. Of course, I'm talking about Daryl Hall and John Oates. This album was co-produced by Hall, Oates, and Neil Kernan, who has a uh, producing list a mile wide, but I'm going to point out some of my personal favorites on here. Uh, this guy produced pop records, R&B records, he also produced stuff like Sign In Please by Autograph, Queensryche Rage for Order, Dokken Back for the Attack. Hell, he even did Britney Fox Boys in Heat. <laughs> so there you go. Neil Kernan. There's a name I didn't know when I woke up this morning, but now I'm glad I heard about him. This, to me, may actually be one of the great gateway albums that leans in R&B and New Wave sounds, like New Wave Pop 80 sound mixed with R&B. They're definitely, of course, starting to incorporate both of those things to see if they can make it work. I think they do a beautiful job of it on this record. Most people would say this is their best overall album. It's hard for me to argue with those two number ones, although I'm a super big fan of the previous album from 1980, Voices. So I'll just say go definitely pick up Voices and Private Eyes. Can't go wrong with either. This is my favorite of the deep tracks. I am I can't believe this one wasn't a single, even though it does have a killer 12-inch dance mix, you know, that is out there. I even played it on one of my New Year's party shows one time. So this will forever be one of my favorite Hollow Note songs. Just got a killer groove to it, and it just makes you put on that mmm kind of face. So here you go, whatever face you're making right now. This is Hollow Notes with Your Imagination.
All right, a killer groove right there, courtesy of Hollow Notes with Your Imagination from the album Private Eyes, the 13th best album of 1981, according to myself. Now coming in at number 12, yet another British act who was on their 18th studio album, at least according to us here in the States, The Rolling Stones. Yes, I mean, yeah, I know a lot of people consider this their last great album, probably their last best top to bottom, although they've had some killer moments since then. Uh, But yeah, this is probably the last one I'd put on an essential album list. So yeah, I'll go along with that narrative, even though, like I said, they've had some good songs here and there. But yeah, this album came out on August 24th of 1981, produced by Mick and Keith, The Glimmer Twins, The Rolling Stones, Tattoo You, so many cool rockers on here. It's just a super loose, fun record. Even though, uh, this is one of those cases where I talk about where people might know too much, and it affects their opinion of the record. If you're too inside, you lose the enjoyment of it. And, you know, now we know that they did this album over a couple of years. Some of these songs are old demos and blah, 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 or like leftover songs from albums, and these songs didn't make it. I mean, hell, start me up. One of the greatest rock and roll songs of all time started off as a reggae song that they didn't use on an album prior to this, like I think around the Some Girls era, or maybe even before that. Uh, but that doesn't change the fact that it's great. It needed time to become the great song that it became. And yeah, that's why this record is a tried and true Rolling Stones classic. Even though it was labored over, it sounds like a loose, fun, live rock and roll album, and that's all we can ask for. So put your mind at ease. It's the Stones. And uh, I got to play this one, even though I talked about the greatness, of course, to start me up. I also love Waiting on a Friend. I also love Neighbors. I love Little TNA. This album really just has it going the fuck on. Uh, but let's go with this one right here. Another killer rock track. Once we finish Start Me Up, we just slam right into this one. Track two. This is Hang Fire. Turn it up.
am I alone here? Like, if that ever comes on in the car when you're driving, do you just do the do-do-do-do-do's? Because I do. Like, I do it, like, at full volume, and I'm sure I sound horrible, and if that ever got recorded and came out, I'd probably be slightly embarrassed. Although, you know, it's not too embarrassing when it's, you know, from the heart, and you really feel something like that. But, man, what a great rock and roll song. Hang Fire by the Stones from Tattoo You the number 12 album of 1981 and coming in at number 11, the last song of the evening from an album that actually did, I'll pull it back a little bit. This album actually scored a perfect 100. This is a flawless album, pretty much tied with the best R and B album of 1981, along with an album you'll hear on the next episode. Pretty much almost all of these records are hundred pointers or perfect albums from here on out. Man, this one is so good. It's a damn iconic classic. Definitely belongs in the conversation of best R&B and funk albums of all time. Or just albums in general, honestly. This album came out on April 7th of 1981. The album is called Street Songs. It is Rick James. Dude, this record, you know, if you... I said this about other records, but if you've only heard Give It To Me Baby and Super Freak, you gotta dive in on this record. It is a beast. It's so freaking good yes i am gonna play my favorite deep cut from the record oh yeah and by the way no big deal or anything but when rick actually says temptation sing on super freak that really is the temptations they sing on ghetto life and super freak so that all being said this one is probably still my favorite song on there although give it to me baby is so freaking good one of the great album openers of all time but before i change my mind i'm going to go ahead and play this one right here Definitely a true lyrical example of the more things change, the more they freaking remain the same. Sad, but true. And while you're dealing with the subject matter of this amazing song, see if you can spot the other guest star on the record. This is Rick James with Mr. Policeman.
Not that the Mary Jane girls didn't do an amazing job on that track. And also, Tina Marie does great stuff on this record as well. The album I'm referring to, Street Songs, of course. But the guest star you were listening for was actually the guy, you know, let's say you're kicking around the studio. Hey, we need a nice harmonica part. Are you going to call Stevie Wonder? Yes, the great, iconic Stevie Wonder providing some background harmonica right there on Mr. Police Man. What a hard-hitting, super funky, super cool, and also super current event. I know that's weird. The song is 40 years old. This should sound like ancient history, and unfortunately it is not. Still at this point, let's all do better, shall we? Especially Mr. Police Man out there. Okay, let's go ahead and get out of here. Join me, will you? Uh, You know, a couple of days from now, we are going to finish off. Finally, we're going to finish off the top albums from 1981 we will be doing the top 10 more guest stars more killer amazing perfect albums it's going to be a happening as the late great gorilla monsoon once said so until then stay tuned for my better half nola with the plugs and the greatest outro song and all of the podcasting business please take it away nola we would like to thank you for taking the time to listen to the show today you can reach us on facebook or twitter We love getting messages and always do our best to respond. Every time you share our show, our new kittens Ruby and Ripley get a treat. We're on Twitter at RockStrikes10 and the direct email is RockStrikes10 at gmail.com. When you search for us, the number 10 is always spelled out. If you would like to support our show financially, we do have RockStrikes10 shirts for sale. For $20, we will ship you out a high quality, soft as heck, next level branded shirt and a button. Send us an email or direct message for more details or to order. Please help us spread the word about this show and all of our other quality shows by listening, liking, subscribing, and sharing. Our official website is cnjradio.com. You can visit this site for all episodes of Rock Strikes 10 going back all the way to episode number one. While you're on cnjradio.com, check out these other quality shows. The Wrestling House Show, a pro wrestling podcast unlike any other. The Synaptic Empire Audio Transmissions, hosted by Randy Brown, a true alternative. The Last Theater, starring Chris, where cinema's trash is treated like treasure. Talking Rock with Joey and the great Mark Streakle of Talking Metal. And the I Am Vinyl Podcast with Pete LaRussa and occasionally Joey. Last but not least, we would like to give an extra special thanks to the great Pete LaRussa and the band Spacebeard for the best outro song in the business. Go to facebook.com slash spacebeardband to purchase their music and make sure to tell them that Rock Strikes 10 sent you. We hope you tune into the next show. Until then, have fun. <laughs> <laughs>